South Shushan. There was a man who had faith in God. One week, a storm arrived, and the waters of the river started rising. As the waters reached the level of the streets, most of the residents left, but he had faith that God would save him. The waters kept rising, and a family with a car came by and said, we can get you out and take you to higher ground. But he had faith that God would save him. The waters kept rising higher and higher, and soon there's about 12, 15 inches of water in the streets. And a young man in a jacked-up pickup truck came by and said, I can get you out, but only for a little while. So I can save you. He says, no, God will save me. The waters kept rising and rising until they're, they're swirling around the first floor of his house. And a fellow with a boat came along and said, we need to get you out of here or you're going to die. He said, no, God will save me. The waters kept rising and rising until finally he's sitting up on the roof of his house. And the National Guard sends out helicopters and says, we can get you out of here. We can get you off that roof into safety. And he says, no, God will save me. And the waters kept rising and rising, and he drowned. Now, this was a man who had great faith in God. And as he died, he arose and he went to heaven. And when he reached heaven, he looked at God and he said, Why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent a car, I sent a truck, I sent a boat, I sent a helicopter. What more do you want? That was not this man up here, which may not be here at the moment. Okay. How many of you know who Stephen Hawking is? Oh, good. That's good. This won't go completely by the wayside then. Stephen Hawking is a tremendously clever and famous astrophysicist. Has any of you, have any of you ever read his book, A Brief History of Time? Started. Started, yeah. <laughs> have any of you understood it? <laughs> I, I don't. Frankly, it's, it's well beyond me. His math is just beyond anything I understand. But you may remember a few years ago he published a paper and there was a tremendous outrage because apparently he had claimed that he had proved that God didn't exist. In point of fact, he never said any such thing. He issued several statements to the fact that he never said such a thing and both opponents and supporters ignored all these statements. Part of the problem is that only a few thousand of all the billions of people on the planet understood his math enough to know what he was talking about. What he really said, though, is it is mathematically possible, however still extremely unlikely, for the Big Bang to have occurred without a prime mover to have begun it. In short, there is a minuscule, tiny possibility that the universe could have just happened by itself. Let me make that perfectly clear. One of the most intelligent non-believers on the planet admits to only a very slight possibility that God does not exist, but he still continues in his non-belief. So how does this relate to the book of Esther that we're reading today? I think most of you already know that it's almost the only book of the Hebrew Bible that doesn't mention Adonai by name. This alone was the reason that many of the early church fathers, and in fact, before that, many of the early Jewish sages rejected and resisted its inclusion in canon. They didn't want it in the Bible. To be fair, some texts of the Septuagint do include a few extra passages that do mention God by name. Uh, prayers by Esther and Mordecai. 
it's fairly apparent that they were inserted later, primarily to overcome this difficulty of not having his name in the book. But the original Hebrew text of Esther has never reliably included these passages. And I think we have, don't have time for a class on the rules of textual criticism to defend that point. We can. It would be here till supper time. By the way, we're going to go through some slides up here to show in each book of the Hebrew Bible how many times or in how many verses the names of Adonai and the term Elohim are used. In the book of Ecclesiastes, God is only called by the name Elohim. And Song of Songs, like Esther, doesn't mention God at all. It never directly addresses him anyway. The Song of Songs is a poetic, greatly symbolic book seen as a, an address from God to his people. We can talk later about why isn't it, it isn't subjected to the same criticism that Esther is. But again, this is supposed to be a short teaching. I don't think you want to miss lunch and possibly supper on my account. You're welcome. Instead of being poetic, though, Esther is a purely historical text. It's best understood in the historical context of the events that it describes. It takes place sometimes af sometime after the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, when a certain percentage of Jews had returned to the Holy Land to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. These Jews were subject to the Persian ruler. They were still part of the Persian Empire. And Judah was one of the 127 satrapies or provinces mentioned in Esther 1.1. Now just imagine if all the Jews had heeded God's call to return. Haman would never have interacted with Mordecai. Esther would never have become queen of Persia. And it's likely that the miraculous events described in the book of Esther would never have happened because the Jews would not have been threatened with death and destruction, at least not there and then. There was a fellow I knew in Arizona who claimed to be an atheist. And he claimed to have studied the Bible intensely. Sounds a little weird to most of us that you can put those two together, but that was the way he did. Anyway, he told me that after having read the Bible, the book of Esther was the only book in it that he could believe to be absolutely true because there's nothing supernatural in it. Now, before you start throwing rocks at me, this is what he saw. You know what, though? He's right. Read the story again. Read it carefully, verse by verse. See if you can find anything in it that's inexplicable. Is it impossible that a young, beautiful girl would catch the king's eye? Is it beyond the realm of possibility that a wise, alert Mordecai would overhear a treasonous plot? Is it inconceivable that a king would have insomnia? Actually, that's probably fairly likely. Each of these things is relatively unlikely, but still very possible. In combination, they become statistically more improbable, but still far from impossible, or anything that can't be described as less than miraculous. We're not talking about seas parting, or the sun standing still, or worlds being created from nothingness. We're talking about a series of events that really have a better chance of occurring altogether than of someone hitting the lottery. And several people hit the lottery every year. This doesn't seem to fit in with the pattern of all the other biblical holidays that we celebrate. They all commemorate a direct intervention by God 
into our world. At Shavuot, we remember the thunder and smoke and the voice of Adonai speaking in a voice heard by all the people. Not to mention the tongues of fire descending and the apostles speaking in all the tongues of the diaspora Jews gathered at the temple. At Rosh Hashanah, we remember the very miracle of creation. And at Pesach, we recount the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Yom Suf, the pillar of cloud and fire. We don't see any of that in Esther. In fact, the story is so possible that we have lots of extra biblical evidence to support it. In Iran, which in case you failed ancient geography, is the kingdom of Persia all those millennia ago. There is still a monument that claims to be the tomb of Esther and Mordecai. The events described in the story of Esther are commemorated, albeit in a kind of twisted way, by the fact that there's a plaque on that monument that lists Esther and Mordecai as criminals for having slaughtered thousands of good Persian men. Is God then absent from the story of Esther? To quote Paul, God forbid. First of all, it's a basic tenet of our understanding of Adonai that his attributes are omnipresence, he's everywhere. Omniscience, he knows everything. And omnipotence, he can do anything. It follows then that if God is everywhere, he was there. Why, though, do we not see him? That's a matter of us not seeing, not of him not being. Look at the sky at night. There are many people out there who see and love the heavens, but don't see God. They can discuss orbital vectors and spatial geometry and gravitational forces dissecting the movements of the planets and stars and moons to within a fraction of an inch. And they attribute this to pure chance. They understand all the complex rules that these bodies follow and answer the question of what and how without ever really addressing the question of why. Why does the earth constantly fall towards the sun but never fall into it? It's because of Psalm 8.3. When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. God demonstrates himself through the very laws of physics that express the order that he has placed upon his creation. That's the miraculous nature of Adonai. He is in such control that his control becomes self-evident and commonplace to us. Many years ago, I worked in theater as a lighting director. I designed and controlled all the lights on stage to make the actors look good, to express what the director and the author wanted, and to satisfy my own aesthetics. An axiom of this field was, if you do the very best job you can, they'll never mention you in the reviews. In short, when control was maintained, your work goes unnoticed. If all my front lights suddenly failed, though, and I had to finish the the, the final scene of a big Broadway number under a wobbly follow spot, you can bet they'd notice it and they would mention it. <laughs> exactly. That would be like a miraculous intervention. People would notice. But everyday life is no less of a work of God. It's a miracle that light works the way it does. It's a miracle that gravity works the way it does or the complex biology of your spleen. 
By the way, if anyone knows how a spleen works, you can explain it to me because I have no clue. It was a miracle when the Jordan was parted. But in a very real sense, it's just as much of a miracle when it flows. Now, I know that there are people in this room who have witnessed miracles. Healings, other divine things that are simply inexplicable without divine intervention. Some here have even been the tools that Adonai used to perform these miracles. For the rest of us, our faith is, I hope, not dependent upon signs and wonders, but upon the one who performs them. Because he performs them even when we don't notice them. I admit I'm often just a teensy bit jealous of people through whom the God works to perform miracles. I mean, really obvious miracles. Some people hear the word of God as if it were a conversation. Or they have vivid visions. And I've never really experienced that. The only time that Adonai has ever spoken to me was once many years ago when uh, my brother and I were about to be evicted from the apartment in which we lived. I prayed for a sign asking God to tell me, where do I go from here? And I prayed that and I went to sleep that night and I had a dream. And on the dream, I could see a book, which I assumed to be a Bible. And it opened up and all I could see that I could focus on on those pages was the word Matthew. So I woke up the next morning and said, okay, Lord, I get your message. I will read the book of Matthew and my answer will be there. So I got out my Bible and I read the book of Matthew. Twice. Nothing. Not a bit of it. So I got up and I got out the penny saver thing and I get down to the work of looking for a place to live. And I opened up the penny saver and there's an ad there under the rooms for rent section that says, call Matthew. I called him. Ended up living there for the next half year or so. I have rarely had a clear message like that from Adonai. But that is my miracle. That is my personal evidence that Adonai deals personally with his people. There was no thunderous voice from heavens, but this was a sign. It's events like this that make the difference between knowing that God is there and feeling that God is here. We all love those moments when we feel God's presence, but we don't always feel it palpably. When we do feel it, it's like that moment you first fell in love. You know that it's right. The feeling is wonderful, but we all know that the feeling won't always be there. That's when the commitment of real love carries you through the times when you're not feeling it. When you don't feel God's presence, that's when it becomes important to know that he is there. That's when it's important to recognize the Lord even when his face is hidden, as it is in the book of Esther. In Mark 8, Yeshua states, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Although the fact in Torah and throughout the, the prophets and the writings, God gives sign after sign after sign exactly to demonstrate the fact that he is there. The book of Hebrews on the first verse of chapter 11 and you can probably all say this one with me. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Which is it? 
Signs or not? Both. Sometimes the sign is the thing not seen. In conclusion, finally, the miracle of Purim is the same miracle that keeps the building from falling down around us, that keeps the stars spinning in the sky, and that keeps your chair on the ground. It is the solid fact that even when we don't see Adonai, He is there. He is here. When we don't understand why He allows something, it is our submission and faith in Him that allows us to know that His plan is final and complete. That He can see, He can use what we perceive to be a betul Hashem, a desecration of the name, to glorify His name. If I can leave you with one concept to take away today, it's this. When you see a man who was dead rise up and breathe again, that's a miracle. But when you see a healthy man walking and talking and breathing, it's no less of a miracle. Now please rise as we conclude in prayer. And take a moment and turn to your right and look at the person there. Those of you on the, on the right can just pretend. Take a le- turn, turn to your left and look at the person there. They are a miracle. When you looked at them, they were looking at you. And they saw the miracle in you. Sometimes God is obvious in you. Sometimes he is hidden. But never doubt that he is there. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. As come before you today, we just ask you to open our eyes to your miracles. ask you that our eyes be opened like Elisha's servant. When Elisha and his servant were besieged by the king of Syria, when he saw the world as a physical thing, he was afraid. But when his eyes were opened to the miracle around him, when he saw the heavenly host and the horses and chariots of fire, his confidence and faith were restored. May our faith be restored as well as we learn to see your hand in the mundane as well as the miraculous. May we all learn to expect your intervention and appreciate it. And Lord, may none of us miss the car and the truck and the boat and the helicopter. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.